Well, ever since our expelling from the Garden of Eden, mankind has been trying to defeat death. Right? Death has been the bane of our existence for, for the human race as far back as we can remember. We try to eat healthier, exercise longer, pour billions of dollars into medical research, all with the goal of living longer and living better, and with the hope that one day, maybe we'll be able to actually conquer death or escape death altogether. I was reminded of this when I stumbled upon a popular blog online called Death is Obsolete. And the subtitle of the blog, it says, a blog about the science and technology of living forever. They say, we created Death is Obsolete to follow the exciting developments in science and technology around the issues of hyper-longevity and immortality, two topics that until only a few decades ago were only possible in the realm of science fiction. Today, there is no better time to be alive because death is, or soon will be, obsolete. And they go on to make some fairly fanciful predictions, though they seem totally serious about it. And then they fill the blog with article after article that they pull from all over online about how to extend our lifetimes, how to live longer, and from how to reverse brain decline to how to grow a replacement human heart, (laughs) or to bacon is good for your waistline and it won't kill you. I like that one. (laughs) But then, unfortunately, another one just below that says, bacon is hazardous to your health. So so which is it? Is bacon the cure or the disease? (laughs) Anyway, I hate to break the news to these optimistic bloggers, but while lifespans do keep increasing, you know what hasn't begun decreasing at all? Our mortality rate. It's still 100%. Death still does come for everyone. And it will keep coming for everyone. Guaranteed. However, I'd hate to break the news on that. I'd love to break the news to these, these people that their whole goal is actually already accomplished. While death still haunts us all, there is much truth in the statement that they say death is obsolete. And this is not true because of any modern research, bacon or no bacon. Death is obsolete because of something that happened about 2,000 years ago, when one man actually did defeat death, conquering it for us forever. You know the story well. We sang about it already today. But I hope you're not so familiar with it that it bores you. Because it is a history-altering event that I believe should still alter our lives every single day. If you think I'm exaggerating, I invite you to follow along with me today on our journey and to look at this true story from history with fresh eyes and to see for yourself Okay, please open a Bible with me. If you have your own, that's great. If you're using, if you need to use one of the ones in the pew in front of you, go ahead and do that. You can pull it out and open up to Luke 23. At the end of the chapter, verse 50, we'll be starting there. In the pew Bibles, that's on page 884. If you're having trouble finding it, page 884 will get you to where we'll be today. And after two and a half years, 
we finally reach the climax of Luke. The culmination of Jesus' life. We saw the first part of that climax last week, right? When, with the crucifixion and death of Jesus, which we saw demonstrated his love, his power, his innocence. It revealed his unique identity to us as Christ and King and God. And then it displayed his heavenly mission to suffer as a sinner to save sinners. However, without part two, part one would have been stupid and pointless and uber-depressing. His love would have been senseless, his identity would have been worthless, and his mission would have been disastrous. So praise God, there's a part two. Okay, let's pray and we'll look at it together. Heavenly Father, as we read your word, as we study your word, I pray that you would speak to us with fresh power today by your spirit, that you would show us who you are, you would show us your love, show us your power, that your spirit would be working on each one of our hearts today, that we would not leave here the same people as we came in, that we would be changed by your word. By your resurrection, your new life for us, God. We thank you and praise you. We pray for your help as we continue now. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you would, begin with me, actually, at the end of the section we read last week. We'll start in verse 44. The last paragraph there says this. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is while Jesus was on the cross, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So after the the physical, emotional, and spiritual agony of the cross, death finally came for Jesus. And Jesus' most devoted followers stood around the outskirts of the spectacle, stunned by what had just taken place, watching what was going on. They had left everything to follow Jesus. And now, it was seemingly all over. Suddenly, all over. Everything had been for naught. Jesus was dead. But before they could really even think about grieving or moving on or rebuilding their old lives, first things first, there was some work to do. They they couldn't just leave Jesus' body hanging there on the cross. So a few of his followers sprang into action to make some burial arrangements. And we see this in verse 50. Continue reading with me. It says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. 
and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So first, we're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea, one of the rare spiritual leaders in Israel who hadn't opposed Jesus. Said in verse 50 that, There's a man named Joseph from Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. In fact, we know from elsewhere that Joseph was actually secretly a follower of Jesus. Okay, But, But there was nothing secret about what he did here. This was a courageous and costly act for him. It probably cost him some wealth, likely cost him his reputation, Maybe his career, don't know. But the Romans usually left bodies on crosses to rot after they died. Joseph decided that that would have been just an awful, unbecoming end to Jesus' life. So he boldly gathers up the courage and goes and asks Pilate for permission to take Jesus' body down, which Pilate granted him. And then Joseph, probably with a couple others, because it would have been really hard to do alone, began the big, gross task before them. Just think of what it would have involved to remove a body from the stakes that held it. And then to to haul a full-grown man's dirty and bloody body down and away from there. This would have been... A disgusting ordeal. Very difficult. But Luke doesn't describe it that way. Instead, this long account of Jesus' suffering ends with a touching display of tenderness, it seems. Until now, Jesus' body had only suffered abuse after abuse after abuse. And now, seemingly too late, but now it finally receives some care. As his followers stepped up to give him the dignity of a, a decent burial. In verse 53, Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. One thing the, the burial of Jesus tells us for sure is that Jesus was truly and totally dead. If any people on earth knew how to do executions, it was the Romans. They made absolutely sure that their subjects were utterly dead before releasing them. And Jesus, you know, he wasn't hurried off by his followers to try to resuscitate him or nurse him back to health. No, he was solemnly placed in a cold stone tomb, which was then sealed shut. There was no hope for a miraculous recovery. No, Jesus was dead and buried. And yet, even in his burial, Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. 
from Isaiah 53, 9, which says the Messiah, after dying, would be laid in a rich man's grave. And, even in Jesus' burial, we can see hints of what his death had been accomplishing all along. As Philip Ryken points out, since Jesus died for others, it seems appropriate that he was also buried in someone else's tomb. He died others' death, and now he was buried in another's grave. Our death. Our grave. Luke then brings up this group of women who had been following Jesus everywhere, at least four or five women we know who had helped provide for Jesus' traveling ministry over the years. They'd helped provide for him, and they keep coming up in Luke because they had a very key role to play in the story very shortly. And verse 55 said, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed, saw the tomb, saw how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. So they observed exactly where he was laid because they intended to return. They prepared spices and ointments, likely for embalming the body. Okay? As well as probably masking the odor of a rotting corpse. But the women's return would have to be delayed for a bit, as the Sabbath was about to begin. And it would have been scandalous to carry out burial rites or work on embalming a body on the Sabbath. Now, these people likely were outcasts for following Jesus, but they were still upright people. They still did their best to follow the law. Now, remember... Jewish days actually started on the evening before, not at midnight like our clocks do. So as Good Friday drew to a close in the late afternoon, they hurriedly got Jesus buried before the sunset, before the Sabbath started, and then they honored the Sabbath by resting all day on Saturday. And they told each other, first thing Sunday morning, we'll go back and we'll finish things up. After... Jesus' final 24 hours were described over two full chapters and 119 verses. The deathly silence of Saturday is described in all of one half of one verse. It says, on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. It's left to speculation what was going on that day. But I'll bet you anything, they weren't only resting. We know that they immediately seemed to go into hiding, fearing for their own lives. And as they hid, I'm, I'm certain that they were mortified. They were crying, and mourning, and grieving, weeping for what they had just witnessed. They probably sat around totally confused, questioning everything, doubting. Whatever hope, whatever they had hoped for before came to a crashing halt with Jesus' final breaths. I think we can see, actually, a first truth implied from this section of the story, which often resounds true in our own lives as well, in our experiences. And that is that death's finality can sure make everything feel hopeless and seem hopeless. Whenever we experience death, its finality can make everything seem hopeless. Now, 
Luke doesn't explicitly state this, that, that Jesus' followers felt hopeless here, but I think it's a fairly safe assumption to make. They had to feel hopeless. And what we do see them doing is treating this situation as if death was indeed the end, with finality. Right? They, had, they left his body alone in a dark tomb and were preparing to remove his organs. <laughs> they are not treating this like they're expecting a resurrection. These people never in a million years expected Jesus to rise from the dead. Think about it. If they expected a resurrection, what would they have done? They wouldn't have buried Jesus, that's for sure. They would have taken the body with them. Or if they had a flair for the dramatic, maybe they would have left him on the cross so everyone could watch. Then they would sit and they would watch and wait for him to come back to life. And then either way, they, they, they wouldn't have wrapped his body up. They wouldn't have buried him. They wouldn't have gotten set to embalm him. They, no, death was final. And they knew it. Just like the billions of people on earth before and after them knew. Death was the end. Because of this reality, we humans desperately grasp for any kind of hope that we can find in life. I think both Joseph of Arimathea and the group of women can show us this. What we see here are are two sets of people looking for something in the midst of death. They're looking for something. What was Joseph looking for? Luke tells us in verse 50 and 51, says he's a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. Looking for the kingdom of God. Really, he was looking for hope. He was anticipating the day that God would restore his kingdom on earth. And he thought he had found it when he had found Jesus. But now his hopes were dashed. As he took the body down from the cross right beneath the sign that mocked, This is the king of the Jews. So much for that kingdom. The women, on the other hand, seem to be looking for something else. As they went through the the customary motions of of burying someone, I think they were looking for comfort, maybe some closure. So they sought to take care of Jesus' body, to look after it, in order to gain some sense of comfort. I'll bet they they weren't finding much in this situation. We do a good job of hiding from the harsh realities of life sometimes. We fill up our days with shallow social media and funny TV shows and and good food, and and we pretend like we're going to live forever. We all know the truth. The truth is blared at us through news outlets every day. A terrorist attack here, a plane crash there, a shooting, a heart attack, obituaries. And we don't like dwelling on these things, so we just exit the site or change the channel. But if we're honest with ourselves, doesn't death cloud everything in our lives? We know it's coming. We're born, we grow up fast, we grow old faster, and then we die. 
suffering and pain are all over the place on this hurting planet, all because of the curse of death that stalks us and creeps up on us all. We've all felt the sting of death before, haven't we? This kind of despair when a loved one passes away. Maybe a a grandparent or a spouse or a parent, a friend, a child, maybe an unborn child. If we haven't felt that pain before, I guarantee you that we all will at some point. Death can make us all nihilist if we're not careful. We feel hopeless. If death is the end of us, it makes us seriously question, what, what's the purpose of our lives? We're all looking for some hope. We're all looking for some comfort. But as we watch Jesus' followers treat this situation with somber finality, it is sobering. And the story reveals the way many of us feel about death, just hopeless. But you could say that there's an underlying message of this passage. Phrase it this way. Death is final, or is it? That's a big, whopping, all caps. Or is it? Or is it? Is death is final or is it? Luke doesn't end, notice, with chapter 23, where we just ended. It's in chapter 24, and we're going to see this message as we continue into chapter 24. Verse 1 says, but, that's a crucial but, okay? It's a turning point here. This is, uh, Jesus was laid dead in a tomb. This is the low point of all history. But, now, remember the women were looking for something. Let's see what they found. Verse 1, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. Now, if you put yourself in their shoes, this would have been panic-inducing. Right? They would have been super confused, really worried. What is going on? They found the exact opposite of what they expected to find. They expected to have to all work together to move this huge stone from in front of the tomb, but the stone was already moved. The door was open. And they expected to, to smell the decay of, of Jesus' rotting body. But verse 3 says they didn't even find the body. It was gone. Sure enough, verse 4 tells us this. They, they, they were perplexed. They were stumped. I imagine them wide-eyed here, just glancing around nervously. They're already strained, nerves shaking probably. They didn't see the stone rolled away and immediately think, Hallelujah, Jesus is alive! No, they, they didn't even know what to think. They're totally perplexed. But then something equally or more shocking happened. Two beings appeared out of nowhere. Look in verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. 
These weren't just ordinary men. These were angels, we know. Heavenly warriors sent from heaven to earth with a special message from God. And they were stunning. Okay? Luke says they were wearing dazzling apparel. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew says they looked like lightning. Pure white clothes. Dazzling. It must have looked like something else because these women fell on their faces terrified. Verse 5, and they were, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. When was the last time you fell on your face when you saw something? Maybe never? <laughs> so I thought, this was a breathtaking, shocking moment. The women had two emotions in particular here we've seen. Verse 4 and 5 says, While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, they were perplexed and they were frightened. Coincidentally or not, two of the same biggest emotions we feel about death. And what we see through the women's encounter with these angels is a crucial point. Yes, death's finality may it can make us make things seem hopeless, but but finding Jesus alive confronts our confusion and our fear. Okay, death's hopelessness, confusion, and fear is confronted by Jesus' new life. Finding Jesus alive confronts our confusion and fear. In our home with three kids under four years old, I'll tell you what we have an abundance of. Pacifiers. You know, or soothers or binkies, you know, the things that little kids suck on. Just have tons of them. We've probably got at least a dozen, maybe 15 pacifiers in our home. But I'll also tell you what we can never find when we need one. (laughs) A pacifier. (laughs) There are pacifier graveyards somewhere in our home where they go to die. They just seem to disappear into thin air. And it seems like we're always looking for them in the wrong places. Well, the angels here tell the women at the tomb that they were looking for Jesus in the wrong place. Verse 5, see what they say. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? So they were looking for Jesus in a tomb. But tombs are for dead people. And the women were totally confused. "Uh Uh-huh. We watched Jesus die. We're seeking the dead among the dead. Wait, wait. What do you mean by living? And therein laid the mind-blowing good news. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Okay? Jesus was not dead anymore. The message paraphrases verse 5. Why are you looking for the living one in a cemetery? The living one. Okay? Not dead. Alive again. Resurrected. 
risen. Okay? Ask almost anyone today where Jesus is right now, and most people will simply assume he's dead. Right? Like any other historical figure from two millennia ago, he's among the dead somewhere. Archaeologists scour places for his grave, for his bones. They'll never find him. Because they're looking in all the wrong places. He is not there. He is risen. These heartbroken women would have likely had a hard time accepting or believing this news. Except that Jesus' body was gone. And there's these (laughs) spectacular angels telling them this news. I imagine they must have had hundreds of emotions swirling in their minds. They're still confused. They're still afraid. But starting to hope. Could it be true? The angels kept speaking, continuing to dispel the confusion and fear on their faces. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Verse 6, he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. He must be delivered. He must be crucified, and he must rise. The clouds of... Despair were rapidly clearing away. This had been Jesus' plan all along. All of the heartache and all the tragedy would give way to new life and joy. It was the plan. Our confusion today, our confusion about death, is confronted by the clarity of Jesus' resurrection. Why does death happen? Is there any real hope? Is there anything after death? And we see answers when we look to the empty tomb. Death comes to all because all have sinned, but sins have been forgiven by a risen Savior. Now there is hope in death where there wasn't before. There is eternal life. Our confusion is confronted by the clarity. And our fears about death is also confronted by the reality of the new life of Jesus. We feel afraid of what's in store for us. We feel afraid about others dying or ourselves dying. But we see hope and joy and salvation when we look to the empty tomb. If you are perplexed by life and death today, if you are frightened by the realities of this life, I urge you, look for Jesus. Find Jesus. And find that your confusion and your fear disappear. Just like it did for these women. Said, and they remembered his words. Right after the angels reminded them, verse 8, they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the, le- to the eleven and all the rest. 
come back to this momentarily. But first, you might have noticed, as we've gone through this story, Jesus has been conspicuously absent so far, hasn't he? After being the central character for the entire book, Jesus doesn't show up here at his own resurrection account. Jesus doesn't show up for his own party. Why didn't he? We know from elsewhere that he actually does show up to one of these women in the garden. And then he starts showing up to all his other disciples repeatedly. But, but Luke doesn't talk about this till later. And his is the only gospel to do this. So why not reveal Jesus here? Why is Jesus absent in the garden scene? Don't you think that would have been the best possible proof for his resurrection? Just produce Jesus. Voila! Jesus! Right? Well, I think there are a couple probable reasons that Jesus seems to be missing here. Even though he's not. Why he seems to be that way. First, Luke wanted to emphasize Jesus' prophecy that he would rise again on the third day. So, he wanted to emphasize what Jesus had predicted long before. So, Jesus may not be in this passage, but his word definitely is. In verse 6, he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, rise. Luke wanted us to see that. Second, though, I also think Luke wanted to emphasize the importance of believing with or without proof. The need to believe with or without seeing. The women needed to have faith in the absence of sight. They had to to take Jesus' word for things. They had to believe what the angels were telling them. And the angels said, remember, Jesus told you this would happen. And so he had. He predicted this multiple times. One such time was Luke 9.22 when he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And now, everything Jesus had prophesied was coming true to the minutest detail. His words were true. His claims were true. His identity as the Son of God was real. He was risen. Today, I could list off reliable historical evidences to you about the resurrection. Proof after proof after proof that I believe that the resurrection is a true and historical reality. From the empty tomb, to the missing body, to the abandoned Roman guard, which they did not do. To the amazing fact that Christians actually used women who were seen in that day as unreliable witnesses in court in that day as their first and primary witnesses. To the fearful disciples, utter transformation from just terrified, cowardly wimps into these bold preachers and martyrs within days. To the 500 reputable eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ who had nothing to gain and everything to lose by believing this and by spreading this news. The list could go on. But when it all comes down to it, 
Either you'll believe or you won't. The ultimate question Luke wants us to ask is, do you believe Jesus' words? He openly claimed that he needed to suffer and die and rise again as the Savior. And then he proceeded precisely as he said and rose again, totally validating his claims. Verse 6 again, once more, he is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Do you remember what he said and do you believe? You may not want to believe this morning because you know that that has some serious implications in your life. You may find yourself resisting belief, trying to come up with some alternative explanations. But when we hear Jesus' words, when we're faced with the facts, we must decide, will we believe that Jesus told the truth? Will we believe that he is who he claimed to be and that he is alive today? It becomes very difficult to believe anything other than this in the face of his resurrection. And that's the final point we'll see today from this account. So finding Jesus alive confronts our fear and confusion, and finding Jesus alive confounds our unbelief. Okay, finding Jesus alive confounds our unbelief. It should cause unbelief, any that we have, to melt away. Listen, our sin and suffering and death can make this world a bleak place. But Jesus promises that he can save us from all of that. He can crush sin. He can transform our lives. He can redeem our world, and he will. Romans 10.9 simply says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from sin and its consequences. Ultimately saved from death. Well, you'll likely still die one day but then you'll live again. Just like Christ lives again. In power, resurrected, eternally. So I ask once more, do you believe? Maybe you're convinced. Maybe you're still confused. We'd love to to talk with you and help you work through these things, please make sure you come see me, talk with me, or there's going to be others as well up here at the front at the end of the service that you can talk with. If you're ready today to take this step and say, I do believe, I need to repent of my sins, I need Jesus to save me, I want to follow him, I couldn't be more excited for you. Because this is the place we all must come to. We'd love to talk with you or pray with you as well up to the service to know where to go from here. The women in our story knew where to go. They had to tell the others. 
I don't think we can even imagine the exuberance they felt in these moments. They couldn't keep it in. Others had to know. So off they ran. They remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. When we truly believe, we will tell others. We will spread the good news. But the women soon encountered some surprising resistance to their report. Look in verse 10. It says, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. I think the disciples were likely feeling what some of us may be feeling today. They were resisting the facts. They were not believing the truth. They thought the women were telling them an idle tale or nonsense. An idle tale? How did an account about an empty grave and dazzling angels sound like an idle tale? Incredible is more like it. And weren't they used to seeing incredible things with Jesus? The fact is, they thought the story was too good to be true. It was too incredible. Maybe they thought the women were delirious in their grief, hallucinating. And so, despite Jesus' words and the women's true testimony, Luke says... They seemed like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Thankfully, Jesus didn't leave them there, as he showed up to them in person soon after. That's a story for another week. But what we see here is their unbelief is being confronted. The women's had been confounded. And for now, the disciples chose the wrong option. They chose not to believe. And we are faced with the same choice today. We are told of an empty grave. We are told of dazzling angels. We're told of a risen Savior. Is it just an idle tale? Is it nonsense? Or is it the gospel truth that changes our lives? This passage ends by telling us that one of the 11 disciples didn't just dismiss everything. And it may be surprising who it is at first. It says they did not believe them, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Peter, this the impulsive, outspoken disciple who had just a few nights before tragically denied Jesus. And the last we saw of Peter in chapter 22, he was running away and weeping bitterly. But now, hearing the women's tale, Peter perks up a bit. Again, could it be true? Maybe he thought, could there, be, could there ever be forgiveness for what I've done? 
Because if the grave is empty, then there might be hope for that. So he stood up, darted out of the room, ran to the tomb. He had to see things for himself. And if today you are struggling to believe, I urge you to be like Peter. Run to the tomb without delay. Don't just take my word for it. Take God's word for it. Hear the eyewitness testimonies. Hear the the witness of history. Verify things for yourself. Check them out. And if you find the tomb empty, let it confound your unbelief. There is hope that our sins can be forgiven. There is hope for life after death. There are many reasons to believe. Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. What had happened? These things really happened. This is unbelievably good news. And it should lead us all, like Peter, to marvel. Like he does, he went home marveling at what had happened. Jesus deserves our eternal praise for what he did on the cross and in the tomb. May we find Jesus alive today. May it cause us to marvel, to worship him. Do any of you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is? Bonhoeffer was an incredible individual who lived in Germany in the early 1900s. He was a teacher, pastor, theologian, and author, all before the age of 30. Then, after Hitler came to power, and during World War II especially, Bonhoeffer acted as a spy for the secret opposition underground that was trying to take down the Nazi regime. After being caught by the Nazis, he was eventually executed in a concentration camp. He actually died 70 years ago this Thursday. Interesting fact. But he was quite young still when he died. Only 39 years old. It seemed to be a tragic cutting short of a life. Or was it? And I read his long biography written by Eric Metaxas last year, and I was deeply moved when I came to the end. You know, closing pages, the author said this, Even if millions have seen Bonhoeffer's death as a tragic and a prematurely ended life, we can be certain that he did not see it that way at all. In a sermon he preached while he was a pastor, he said, Life only really begins when it ends here on earth. And all that is here is only the prologue before the curtain goes up. That is for young and old alike to think about. Why are we so afraid when we think about death? Death is only dreadful for those who live in dread and fear of it. Death is not wild and terrible if only we can be still and hold fast to God's word. Death is not bitter if we have not become bitter ourselves. Death is grace, the greatest gift of grace that God gives to people who believe in him. Death is mild. Death is sweet and gentle. It beckons to us with heavenly power if only we realize that it is the gateway to our homeland, the tabernacle of joy, the everlasting kingdom of peace. 
How do we know that dying is so dreadful? Who knows whether in our human fear and anguish we are only shivering and shuddering at the most glorious, heavenly, blessed event in the world. Death is hell and night and cold if it is not transformed by our faith. But that is just what is so marvelous, that we can transform death. And this is only possible because of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Death can be transformed. Therefore, death is now obsolete. Let's pray. God, may we grasp this truth firmly and fully and in fully understand it. May our hearts be awoken to, to see you risen. May we believe with all our hearts, all our minds, that you are alive today. We need your help because you know how weak our faith sometimes is, God. So transform our faith, transform our lives, transform our deaths. It's only you can do. We ask for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.